You are the most undiplomatic man I have ever met. I'm not running for office. Besides, you don't know anything about me. Oh, well, let's see. James Thomas Braddock, 38 years old, Colonel in the Army Special Forces, retired. Prisoner of war for eight months, missing in action for seven years, escaping last year. And you are now in Saigon at the request of the President to see if there are any more Braddocks in Vietnam. Like I said, you don't know anything about me. Welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation, oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend and give us a favorable review. Our season-long theme of the Summer of Canon continues to roll on, and this week, the LSCE delves into a classic Rambo knockoff destined to get all of the POWs excited with the Chuck Norris cult classic that is 1984's Missing in Action. Join us! Now, I've said it before on this show back when we were covering Silent Rage back in the day, and hey, we did it twice, so feel free to go back, see our first episode, or even better, check out the discussion about Silent Rage featuring Dr. Worm. That was a fun episode. But I say all that to say the fact remains the same. I have to admit to everyone here, I've never been the biggest of Chuck Norris fans. Now, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean I don't like him. Just, I've always felt him to be a bit ham-fisted. And, well, when you watch his movies, he always comes off as forced. Like he's trying to get the public to really latch on and like him, and it just doesn't work for me. But, that being said, he remains, both as a person and an actor, for good or ill, as the face of an entertainer that had a real influence on my childhood. I mean, come on, let's face it, he remains rather iconic. He is the guy that, obviously, starred in the shot that was made famous by this week's movie, showing himself as a character rising majestically in slow motion out of a body of water, firing a machine gun from the hip, looking deadly serious. And that was a shot that got replayed all of the time in advertisements for action movies, would show up parts of this trailer or whenever they were showing Chuck Norris to advertise for anything else, even though it wouldn't be missing in action, it would be, you know, hey, Chuck Norris, this guy, or hey, they reused that shot over and over again in the 1992 film Sidekicks. That's, oh, oh, 
classic. Someday we're going to have to cover that. That's a uh, young Jonathan Brandis showing up with Chuck Norris. And I'm not saying it's good, but again, it's iconic and it copies it. So, all of that being said, what exactly was the impetus of getting this week's film made? Well, honestly, when push comes to shove, I think we can all agree a good rule of thumb is to sit back, relax, and blame Sylvester Stallone. (laughs) Well, not because he did anything bad, per se. Uh, That being said, I mean, I guess rhinestone is sort of a crime against all that is good in the world, but let's be honest, we're not talking about that here. No, it's honestly because Stallone had a fantastic box office record of having success with iconic roles like Rocky and Rambo, and that made people want to emulate that level of success for themselves, even if they necessarily didn't have the talent or the funding or, let's face it, a stable of actors to pull it off properly. So allow me to set the stage. The film, Rambo, is an adaptation of David Morrell's 1972 novel, First Blood, and it made its cinematic debut back in 1982, where it introduced the world to the character of John Rambo, a troubled ex-Green Beret veteran who runs afoul of an arrogant small-town sheriff, he snaps, and he brings his guerrilla warfare training home. Directed by Ted Kotcheff and starring Sylvester Stallone, Brian Dennehy, and Richard Crenna, it was put out by Corolco Pictures for a modest $15 million, and of course, it wound up making $125 million and some change at the box office. Not too shabby, if you ask us. So, unsurprisingly, in 1983, when a very, very popular sequel script for First Blood titled First Blood Part 2, was floating around Hollywood, penned by this nobody guy who went by the name of James Cameron. You know, at the time, he had only taken some odd jobs here and there working for Roger Corman and doing special effect work. His biggest claim to fame at the time was directing a really lackluster sequel to Piranha, entitled Piranha 2 The Spawning. But whatever the case, the powers that ran Hollywood took notice, and this was considered to be the next big film. Rambo, as far as this script, was going to go back to Vietnam on a special mission. He was going to get back to fighting the Viet Cong, rescue some POWs, and you know, on the big screen at least, America was going to get to have that win that many felt they were denied over the communists. What's more, it was pretty much a well-established fact this was going to make money. And as per usual, our ever-intrepid go-go boys over at Canon wanted some of that money too. Thus they posited, why don't we make up a story about a Vietnam guy ourselves, and then we can be inspired to tell a very similar story about saving POWs. Oh, oh yeah, and we'll make sure that our film comes out first. That'll help us avoid a lawsuit. Brilliant thinking! Obviously, though, Golan and Globus were not the only ones seeing potential dollar signs for stories about rescuing POWs. Chuck Norris himself had actually been sniffing around the very topic, trying to gin up interest in a side project that he wanted to put together for an action film. To say that Chuck Norris has a hard take on Vietnam and the Vietnam War would be an understatement. His younger brother, Wyland Clyde Norris, who was with the 101st Airborne, was himself killed in Thuathien 
in June of 1970, just a little over a month after he had started his tour of duty. Norris at the time was trying to do two things. He wanted to make an action war film that would keep him from being typecast as this martial arts guy and would allow him to have a project that he could also dedicate to his deceased sibling's memory. Norris had read the 1982 J.C. Pollock novel Mission M.I.A., which it centers its plot around a coordinated rescue of American POWs. And he liked it so much that he was inspired to reach out to a friend and screenwriter, James Bruner, to help craft a story that he could use to be the vehicle for his next film, copying that same sort of motif. Bruner had written the 1981 action thriller Eye for an Eye that Norris starred in, and they had worked together, they got each other. And what also would help is Bruner himself went and got input from ex-Green Berets who had actually served and fought in Vietnam to help get details about his story that could lend it sort of a layer of authenticity. Norris and Bruner drafted this spec script under the title of Missing in Action, and they tried to shop it around to various studios in Hollywood during the early 80s, but they weren't finding any takers. You see, shockingly, Vietnam as a subject was not super popular with movie studios in the early 80s. A lot of people were trying to forget about the Vietnam War. So, after facing a lot of rejection, they end up stumbling their way over to Canon, and they find themselves being courted actually fairly aggressively by Canon producer Lance Houle, who thought that Norris should really get together and talk with his bosses. He thought they could make a really great Vietnam picture. Golan and Globus agreed to meet with Norris, and they basically address him. He comes in, and they say, you are just the man we wanted to see. Here, here, here. You have a movie for us? Great. But before you tell us anything about that, we'd like you to meet these three guys. This is Arthur Silver, Larry Levison, and of course, Steve Bing. They've been working on an action script for us here about rescuing some POWs, and we're going to call it Missing in Action. You can read it right here. But before you leave, you gotta let us know. Are you in or are you out? Was it fate? Was this the perfect setup for, well, you got your peanut butter in my chocolate sort of accusation? Who knows? But like all things canon, the logic as to what occurred next gets a little crazy. Norris, for his part, is rather shocked that they weren't going to be using his and Bruner's script, but he wasn't going to turn down the chance to make a Vietnam film. He agreed, and that was a move that both bummed Bruner out at first, at least until it was later revealed that the Go-Go Boys were hot for both of the scripts, especially since Norris had walked through their doors with some ideas of his own. So, in a move that actually put the two cousins at odds with each other, Menahem Golan announced that they're going to sign the 44-year-old karate instructor into having a five-picture deal for $5 million, and they agreed that they would shoot both of the films back-to-back. -back. One of them would just be the sequel to the other, and of course they'd call it a life. This would be the start to a pattern. Golan, who was supposed to be the creative talent, was going to start committing canon to agreements and to sums of money without consulting his cousin Globus, who himself was supposed to be the money man who gets to finance their output and keep things in the black. Not a great trend to start. 
They had already had in-house producer Lance Houle lined up to shoot the script that they were going to pitch to Norris. The plot would be about a tough colonel, James Braddock, who along with his men had been captured and they were going to be held as POWs in a North Vietnamese labor camp, forced to undergo torture by a sadistic Viet Cong colonel. That is, until they ultimately decided to make a daring escape. For the cast, they had gotten Soon Tech Oh to play the villainous Colonel Yin, Stephen Williams, who, for those of you who are old enough and can remember, he was Captain Fuller on the original 21 Jump Street series. He was cast to play a broken POW Captain Nestor. Throw in John Wesley, David Chung, and famed Hawaiian-born wrestler Charles J. Kalani Jr., a.k.a. Professor Toro Tanaka, and you have yourself a really decent action cast was going to be budgeted for $2.4 million, and the crew were all going to be flown down to St. Kitts in the Caribbean, where it would double as the tropical jungles of Vietnam. And they would start filming in June of 1984, and the goal was to wrap their work before August. Bruner himself was hired and was flown down to the Caribbean to begin to rework his and Norris's script, so that as soon as shooting on the first film was complete, they would immediately transition to shooting the sequel. The stories of the two films were basic enough that it actually wasn't hard to connect the two. The Go-Go Boys were lining up resources for the sequel, which in their mind would need to be bigger, better, and would thus really rake in the dough as a sequel. So they started scouting locations in the Philippines and were trying to find a director that they could have helm the second movie. Now, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, a.k.a. number four, had just come out in April of 1984, and it was making some decent money, helmed by the very competent slasher director, Joseph Zito. Had Zito himself made a war film? Nope. Did that matter to the Go-Go Boys? Sure didn't. They had gone, they had seen Friday the 13th, the final chapter, and they liked it. So they thought, let's offer it to this guy. For his part, Zito took the job, and he was given a budget of $3 million. In addition to getting to shoot in the Philippines, this outing was going to showcase James Braddock triumphantly returning to the same POW camp that he had escaped from to help get the remaining American men back home. For this film, we would have two legendary character actors cast. First, M. Emmett Walsh being cast as Braddock's old war buddy turned black market dealer. And then, of course, we have the amazing James Hong stepping in to play the film's villain, General Tran, the man who is denying to the world that the Vietnamese have any of our boys. Throw in E. Eric Anderson, who had just come off of working on Friday the 13th with Zito, Perino Mascario, soap opera legend Lenore Kasdorf, and also, don't blink or you'll miss him. There again, showing up in the background, we have a young Jean-Claude Van Damme popping up as a random soldier. Shooting would start in August, once the first film had completed, and go on through October of 1984. And after they had gotten the two films back-to-back -back in the cans, Golan and Globus were forced to face a rather uncomfortable reality. You see, the movie that they had brought to Norris the one they selected the writers for, the one that they used their in-house producer to be the director on, the one that was supposed to kick it all off? Well, it wasn't garbage per se, but it didn't look good. 
On the other hand, the film that they spent a little more money on, the one that came from an established screenwriter who they had gotten an outside director to film in a better location, by comparison, it was a masterpiece. Look, not to put the cart before the horse or to provide analysis necessarily at this juncture, because honestly, we're still talking about comparing a canon film to a canon film here, but just to give it some context, Lance Houle had produced many a film up to this point, but he had never directed one himself. This was his first time at Bat Behind the Camera. Also, we need to consider this. The writers. Larry Levinson had written a single episode of Laverne and Shirley in 1982, ugh, the Hollywood years, and then he had written a single episode of Joni Loves Chachi. That was it. While Arthur Silver had a long list of TV writing under his belt. He had done Happy Days, Blansky's Beauties, Laverne and Shirley, Working Stiffs, and of course the ill-fated Bad News Bears series. But again, he was a television writer. He had never actually written a film. The craziest remaining strut of that three-legged stool had to be Steve Bing. A man who I definitely feel should have a film made about his life at some point. You see, his grandfather was a New York real estate developer. So when young Steve hit the age of 18 in 1983, he overnight inherited $600 million. And he promptly dropped out of college and decided he was going to get into the movie business. This was literally his first writing credit because Cannon let him. Yeah. So, regardless of the uh, <clears throat> potential reasons things were not working out as planned, you see, Golan and Globus decided that they had to make a real change and lead with their best foot forward. And so, the solution they came up with was they swapped the film's release. The lineup would now be that Zito's movie would be the first movie to be released with the original title, Missing in Action, even though it was set in modern 1984. The plan was they would wait a few months, and then, when they would, still in a sort of confusing fashion, release the Hool film, it would be coming out as a prequel, set ten years earlier, but marring that, it would have the awkward title of Missing in Action 2, The Beginning. I guess, well, I could go on, folks, but you've been ever so patient with my rambling up to this point. So how about this? How about I stop my yapping and we get to a trailer? What do you say? Vietnam, 1984. Chuck Norris is James Brand, decorated war hero, ex-prisoner of war, an American on a mission, one man who couldn't forget the Americans that were left behind. We categorically deny that there are any living MIAs in Vietnam. Wrong answer. James Braddock has returned. To uncover the truth and free the soldiers. We're going home. Missing 
in action. Damn right. James Braddock declares war. The war isn't over until the last man comes home. America had no more heroes. Until now, Chuck Norris, missing in action. We open on a firefight where Colonel James Braddock, is played by Chuck Norris, is attempting to lead his men away from the pursuing forces of the Viet Cong, taking gunfire and being shelled as the American troops struggle to make it to their designated landing zone for extraction. As the men struggle to board the choppers, a number of soldiers are getting killed, and one of the transports even explodes from enemy machine gun fire. Braddock ends up lagging behind to provide cover for the last of the men. Wounded, Braddock watches in horror as the men he tried to protect are systematically bayoneted by the enemy, causing the colonel to shakily stand and lunge in a last-ditch effort to take out the attacking Viet Cong soldiers, detonating grenades in a final defiant attack, only to wake up from his own nightmare, covered in sweat. Braddock himself was a prisoner of war for seven years before he was able to escape from the camp and return home. It's only been a few months since he gained his freedom, and he still relives the nightmares of the loss of his comrades and the tortures they faced together. Frustrated that his concerns about there being more prison camps and more POWs, Braddock reluctantly agrees to join up with a diplomatic summit that is being held in Ho Chi Minh City or old-school Saigon, to see if he can do something good for the men who he knows have been left behind. It's something that he struggles with, as members of the United States' own government have a hard time taking him seriously, or his lack of evidence. Vietnamese government will never buy it. People in these photos could be damn near anybody. Including American MIAs. Now listen. Even our own experts agree that that's only a 50-50 chance. You can imagine what their people are going to say. We're going to need something a hell of a lot stronger than that if we're going to make an impression on them. Isn't that why Colonel Braddock is alone? As irrefutable evidence? Some piece of irrefutable evidence. Just look at the way the son of a bitch is dressed. Who am I trying to impress, Senator? Things deteriorate quickly when the envoys land in Vietnam. Senator Porter, as played by David Tress, and his aide, Anne Fitzgerald, as played by Lenore Kasdorf, are rather embarrassed when Braddock refuses to shake the hand of the Vietnamese General Tran, as played by James Hong, who comes to greet them. And they worry when Braddock spots a fellow officer, Vin, as played by Ernie Ortega, and gets to witness him experiencing a flashback from his POW days, where Vin was the one Vietnamese officer who was torturing him. At the press conference that is held, because of course most diplomatic talks are one-sided and very theatrical, General Tran takes the opportunity to publicly degrade and slander Colonel Braddock on a world stage, accusing him of committing war crimes to deflect away from his charges that there are still American POWs in Vietnam, parading instead a group of supposed regular citizens to testify in sworn statements against him. 
Braddock, for his part, publicly forgives all those who testify against them, realizing that they've been put up to it, threatened by the Vietnamese government, and then he turns to confront General Tran himself. General Braddock, is it not true that during the war there was a price on your head of 5,000 American dollars? It was more like 20,000. Why don't you tell us why there was a price on my head? For your war crimes, of course. For killing assholes like you. <laughs> the atrocities as documented in front of you were the real reasons why Colonel Braddock was held here. He was not a prisoner of war, but a common criminal. This understandably causes a bit of an incident. And during cocktails afterwards at the hotel, Braddock is yet again insulted by both General Tran and Vin. So of course he does the logical thing. He takes Anne up on her offer to stop by her room for a nightcap, and then he takes great effort to show to security that he is heading to Anne's room with champagne, ice, and glasses. Once he's there, he dons a black outfit and proceeds to leave her room to conduct intel on Ho Chi Minh City, exiting by way of the balcony and using this fake tryst as his cover, much to Anne's chagrin. While he's getting the lay of the land, it, well, that's even not really true, he's just got one singular goal. He's going to get what he wants out of General Tran, infiltrating the man's home, eliminating the guards around him, and then holding a knife to the sleeping man's neck to learn exactly where his prison mates are being held. As Braddock goes to leave, the general ends up pulling a gun on him, forcing Braddock to kill the man with a throwing knife before he fights his way out of the compound. He rushes back to the hotel, where he uses the balconies to climb back into Anne's room, quickly removing his clothes and sliding into bed with her, thereby establishing an alibi as Vin and a bunch of confused guards burst in on them. Vin is angry and informs him that he is now going to be persona non grata in country and he must leave in the morning, to which Braddock happily complies, flying instead to Thailand to look up an old buddy who's staged out of Bangkok. Jack Tuck Tucker is played by M. Emmett Walsh, a man who can help him get the POWs back. Braddock goes to visit him and notes that his friend is doing rather well for himself, having set up shop as a black market dealer in Thailand, using his boat to get supplies up and down the river. When Tuck agrees to help, he's understandably, though, worried about the mission in general. What the hell you need my boat for, anyway? Going back to Nam, rescue some MIAs. Oh, shit, Braddock, you're crazy. <laughs> she said we, said we're going back. You owe me, Tuck. 
called the Southern Bell, and he uses it to smuggle supplies and weapons all over the region. And it's a great vessel. It's got lots of hidden weapons and a turbocharged engine that he can use for evasive maneuvers. They get a specialty assault raft to use on the mission as well, which is loaded with guns and ordnance, and is made out of Kevlar. During their time in Thailand, though, Braddock is able to thwart multiple assassination attempts that agents of the Vietnamese government try to make on him and Tuck's life, allowing him to secure a helicopter to back up their mission. As they're finally preparing to go, Vin and a force of Vietnamese commandos attempt to take them out once and for all, but both Tuck and Braddock make an escape in their boat, which angers the sadistic killer. Vin himself quietly heads out at night in a small craft, and he ends up intercepting the Southern Bell and boarding it, and he attempts to murder Braddock personally, but the two end up in a showdown that leaves Vin killed with his own knife. As they approach the appropriate point in the Delta, Braddock dons his military gear and instructs Tuck that they're going to drop him off, warning him that if he doesn't return with the men in 12 hours, he's to get the hell out of there. Tuck gets rather angry, knowing that his friend has no backup plan, and that he's counting on him to step up and join him. And while the cantankerous black market dealer chews him out for it, he ends up loading his supplies on the raft too, unwilling to let his friend face certain death alone, all while Braddock smiles. They make their way upriver, eliminating patrols as they go, until they come within about a kilometer of the camp, and that's when Braddock decides to go the rest of the way alone on foot, leaving Tuck behind to cover and wait for his arrival. After a few close calls in the jungle, Braddock finds the camp, and he waits for nightfall to stage his assault, rigging the communications outpost and the officers' bunkers with C4 explosives to draw the attention away from the prison break that he's staging. As he rushes across the compound, he's horrified to find that the cages are empty of Americans, and when he asks the few remaining Vietnamese prisoners where the men are, he finds he's too late. Sergeant Dean, Black Panther Rangers. You are a the American? Yeah, where are they? They have moved less than three hours ago somewhere farther inland. You know what road they took? There is only one road that connects with Highway 1. It follows the river all the way. You are going after them? Learning the Americans have been moved up the road for a different camp, Braddock leaves, with the freed men deciding to take up arms and vowing to battle against the remaining captors. Braddock and Tuck move further upriver, attacking the prison convoy from the water, shooting up the jeeps and eliminating the soldiers, inspiring the prisoners to fight back against their captors. The guards respond by hitting the attack craft with a well-placed rocket, knocking both Tuck and Braddock into the water. They start to celebrate, 
what they think is an early victory, only to have Braddock surface with the formerly mounted M60 machine gun and eliminate all of the guards in attendance. Braddock and Tuck then check on the survivors and make them a promise. You guys are going home. Damn right. The fellows make their way to the extraction point that they had set up with the Southern Bell in a stolen jeep, although now they're being pursued by the Vietnamese military reinforcements. Braddock stays behind to draw their fire and to attempt to slow down the enemy, while Tuck races with the men out of harm's way. During their final push to get to the bell, in a Zodiac, the army ends up catching up to them, and in a move to buy time, Tuck ends up sacrificing himself to let Braddock and the men all get on board, taking out an enemy patrol boat himself using the bell's M60 and going down with his ship as the bell is destroyed by enemy fire. The backup helicopter arrives, and Braddock and the POWs end up being extracted, happy to have their freedom, but understanding the cost, and remembering Tuck as they fly off. Braddock orders the chopper to fly them all back to Saigon, a.k.a. Ho Chi Minh City, arriving with the men and parading them out in front of the press's cameras during the end of the diplomatic talks, harshly proving his point all along to the rest of the world and humiliating the enemy in the process, as credits roll. So where do we begin? Well, let's start with the real heroes of this film for me. Uh, don't get me wrong. Norris, he's... he's fine. But honestly, if you've seen a Chuck Norris movie you can just skip this part. I mean, this is him snoozing his way through. He's doing a by-the-numbers checklist of, I need to look tough, I need to grimace at the right moment, I need to fire my gun. Great. Is it bad? No, not at all. He's not awful, but he's not good either. So we're going to skip him and jump to what really works. And that's fine. What really works here is the great performances we get out of M. Emmett Walsh and James Hong. They make this movie. M. Emmett Walsh has the dubious distinction of being an actor singled out by critic and favorite punching bag of mine, Roger Ebert, in a summation that I happen to completely agree with. Ebert had established what he called the Stanton-Walsh rule. It's where he opined that no movie featuring character actors Harry Dean Stanton or M. Emmett Walsh in a supporting role can be altogether bad. And I would have to agree with him on both counts, as Walsh, at least for me, makes this movie ever so much fun. He takes the character of Jack Tuck Tucker, and he runs with it hard. The fact that they meet up and have a negotiation over the price of renting Tuck's boat, all while Tuck is drunkenly engaged in a bar fight with some local toughs at Madame Pearl's brothel, it's just a marvelously ridiculous scene, and it's so amazingly fun. I'm looking for Jack Tucker. Is he around? Is He'll be here in a moment. Thanks.
going, Tuck. Braddock, what the hell are you doing here? I want to rent your boat. Oh, shit. We better talk later. Support, how much? Five grand! Four grand! I didn't hear you. Say one thousand? No. Yeah, thousand bucks. That's what I thought you said. Walsh is clearly having a lot of fun here, more than we have gotten from him on previous outings. Plus, we get to see him in really, well, I'm going to call them weird scenarios for those of you who are fans of M. Emmett Walsh. He's a guy who made his bones playing these uptight, usually authoritarian figures, you know, cops, government bureaucrats, killers. So now we get to see him here as this goofy, laid-back, drunk guy who, I mean, repeatedly we find him caught in bed with two women at once. It's just such a trip seeing him get to play a character like this and chewing the scenery on this picture. But that also leaves us with the wonderful James Hong. In my mind, character actor extraordinaire, and for my money, with the exception of one Victor Wong, he is the face of modern Asian actors for the last 50 years, playing them with dignity and gravitas. Hong, like so many of his performances, he's grand here, but he gets it. He understands my job is to be a villain, and he manages to be both very memorable, even though he has only a short time on screen, he plays the role of General Tran to the hilt. He's cold, he's calculating, and he's really, really giving us the feeling that he enjoys personally embarrassing the character of James Braddock on the world stage when he confronts him. Is it true that you let 10 of your men die in prison all because you alone refused to admit your war crimes? You know, I'll say this, it is rather interesting. While no doubt Wong and his castmate Ernie Ortega do a spectacular job here in giving faces to the story's villains up on the big screen, what actually makes this picture a little different is both of them honestly are dead by the halfway point of this picture, which is kind of interesting. They've been taken out by our film's lead, so there's actually no real big bad to root against with this story as the rescue and retribution actually unfolds, which honestly, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It can be a little refreshing to see, well, our main villains have been defeated. Yes, their armies still exist, but Unfortunately, though, I'll say this, it plays into the bad part of this film. And I'm using air quotes because this film is really a poster child for some really not great blatant 80s jingoism and also a sort of, well, unpalatable racism towards Vietnamese people. 
Truthfully, when we watch films from the late 70s and the early 1980s, when the topic of the Vietnam War comes up for good or ill, even with the best of offerings, such as let's take something that's really considered a masterpiece like Michael Cimino's 1978 classic The Deer Hunter, there is an underlying level of some horrific Asian stereotyping that goes on, and it really tries to ratchet up the otherness to a level that is well, understandably, harder to swallow by modern audiences as anything other than a racist portrayal. It only gets worse as time marches on. Indeed, during the time that the film came out, critics were quick to point out the problems with this film's depiction of the Vietnamese. So I can attest, as one who grew up watching films like this, I can both understand them but I can also see why they're problematic. So I will absolutely acknowledge right here, right now, this film is a harder sell to modern audiences today as they look through their lens of, well, wait a minute, why are we doing this? And people can be troubled by the rather harsh stereotype depictions of both the Vietnamese and, what's more, the Thai population proper. I can't defend all of it outright. This is a B-movie, and it's from a certain era. But what I can tell you is the following. I can acknowledge that this is a film that was made now some almost 40 years ago today. And it was already out of step with its own time when it was made due to social norms that were trending then. While I can acknowledge that its depictions don't hold true to modern understandings this time, we can still judge the film and its goals of storytelling separately. And we can appreciate it for what it's trying to be. An exciting, albeit misguided, attempt at making a popcorn movie for the day. Still, Look, I can't sit here and tell you that it's a fine film or that this is going to be worthy to be included in a pantheon of the best of the best. But honestly, for a film that was coming out in an era that was really having an identity crisis over how it viewed the Vietnam War, this movie actually serves to be sort of a valuable little time capsule of a story from a certain time and a certain place that does make it interesting to experience at least. But you know, I'll say this, my opinions, while they're not something that are to be set in marble or considered to be gospel, I understand that's okay. That's exactly why we have things like the sidecar. Welcome to the sidecar, y'all. It's so fucking here. Welcome to the sidecar, y'all. We got what you wanna hear. Yep, yep. Welcome to the sidecar, y'all. It's so fucking here. Welcome to the sidecar, y'all. We got what you wanna hear. Yep, yep. yep. 
And joining us again today in the sidecar, two weeks in a row, the marvelous monologist of mirth, creator of Chunk McBeef Chest, Ninja News Japan, and the now wrapped Velosa podcast, the one, the only, Peter Martin. I reached out to Peter to see if he would be interested in covering this Chuck Norris picture, and he was more than happy to give his cinematic two cents and cover the things that he found interesting about it. So without further ado, Peter, what do you have for us? today i can't honestly say i know a lot about the military uh everything i've learned about the military tactics and whatnot i've learned from movies and video games and maybe a few friends who have told me things one of the things i noticed right away is is that uh in the movie missing in action they at no point actually seem to aim the guns they only hip fire, which I guess was cool when this movie came out. Like it was cooler to just spray bullets than it was to actually aim and shoot things, which is an aesthetic choice, which is fine. But then that led me to think about the aesthetic choices of the film and the fact that in the military, you are not allowed to have your own stylish haircut, whereas Chuck Norris is the only one who has sort of Chuck Norrisy hair, which is fine. It didn't really take anything away from the movie for me. I just was no. I just noticed right away they don't aim their guns, and Chuck Norris hasn't had a haircut. This movie also does something, and for some reason, I only notice it in this film. So Chuck Norris is out for revenge. So he goes into a female coworker's room to make it look like they're going to be having uh, personal relations, and there's guards outside to make sure that nothing happens. So then Chuck Norris sneaks out the window, very slowly climbs across the building. But it's actually, I think, he really did it. So that was pretty cool. Goes and finds the guy who did bad things. Kills the guy who did bad things. But he's Chuck Norris. He didn't just kill him. He said, like, I'm going to go and don't turn around and wake up. And the guy pulls a gun out of his bed. So he turns around and throws a knife. So Chuck Norris is one of those heroes who, who never just kills. He only kills in self-defense. Also fine. Not really going to argue about it. Sneaks back to the hotel. But then they find the dead body of the guy that Chuck Norris has just killed. And they're like, we know Chuck Norris did this. So they start rushing back to the hotel and Chuck Norris has to get back into the hotel room before they get there. And then 20 or 30 soldiers burst into the room and Chuck Norris has jumped back into bed to make it look like he's just finished intimate relations uh, with the woman. I've never understood this. This happens in a lot of films, by the way. I've never understood this as a plan. So you think what you would really do is, hey, guards... I'm going to call you and say, is Chuck Norris in the room? So there's no reason for me as the general to rush over there and kick in the door myself. I could have my troops out looking for Chuck Norris in the streets and whatnot and use the telephone. The telephone didn't exist. They didn't have cell phones. Sure, no problem. But these are guards. You call the hotel, say, hey, there's some guards outside of room 502. Can you have them rush up there and have them kick in the door and let me know if Chuck Norris is in the room? That's kind of what telephones are for. There's been lots of movies I've seen where the hero has had to sneak back into the room to make it look like he's been having sex all night, which he hasn't been having. Uh, and the other person busts in the room. But I was wondering, what's the plan? So if I'm going to kick in the door, I don't need five other guys with me if he's not there, which is what I'm assuming. And if he's there, I'm not going to arrest him. So I, I just, I get stuck in this loop. What is the actual goal or the plan of having everyone burst in to this room. Unless, of course, the plan is just to have Chuck Norris with his shirt off in bed with a sexy lady to make it look like he's been having 
personal relations for apparently several hours. I mean, he is Chuck Norris. He can do what he wants. I found this to be a very competent film. I really, really enjoyed it. And the reason for that is that everything was very real. Like the cars that flipped over and jumped, they just took a real car and like flipped it over. So it didn't, it wasn't as big as the stuff you see today, but it was very real, which I enjoyed. And that made me think of one of the only other things I've ever enjoyed about Chuck Norris, the man, which is uh, Chuck Norris action karate jeans. Now I had to go find the ads, but I remember actually trying to buy these in the early 2000s. They of course were not being produced anymore. But I thought it would be really funny. I actually wanted to buy it for a friend for his birthday. Here for your birthday are some Chuck Norris action karate jeans. But you can find the ads online. But since I don't want you to have to go through that work, I will read the ad to you. There's a picture of Chuck Norris doing a high kick. And then there's another ad where it's a Chuck Norris. And you kind of get a nice little butt view. He doesn't have as nice a butt as Jean-Claude Van Damme, if I'm being really honest. Uh, but Chuck Norris in his speech bubble is saying, if you have the action, go with action designer jeans. And then it serves an explanation. Chuck Norris action karate jeans are slim, trim, good-looking pants. You can stretch, jump, kick, do any activity. The action jeans will never bind your legs and won't rip out. The special hidden gusset and stretch denim fabric see to that, exclamation point. If you're a martial artist or any active person, get the designer jeans made for you. Chuck Norris action karate jeans Child sizes 6 to 14, adult sizes waist 24 to waist 40 for only $29.95. Guarantee you may return your Chuck Norris action jeans in new condition within seven days and receive a prompt refund or size adjustment. So that means if you take your uh, action jeans and you go into a fight, you can't return those jeans. Those are not going to be in new condition anymore because they've been through battle. Uh, but by that time, you've bonded to them and your life has changed significantly. There is another ad. It's the one with the high kick, so I'm just going to read it. This came out later, which is also interesting. Developed by Chuck Norris for stunt fighting and action movies, these great-looking Western-style jeans have a unique hidden gusset. They really, really love the gusset. Uh, have a unique hidden gusset, which allows greater movement without binding a rip-in. Satisfaction guaranteed. Check the fit and feel of these great-looking jeans. If you are not pleased, return them within 14 days postage prepaid and in new condition for a full refund of purchase price or size adjustment. Half price lifetime guarantee. If they ever wear out, rip, fray, or tear, return them, postage prepaid, for a new pair at half the retail price at the time of return. The price has been reduced from $29.95 to $19.95 for adult sizes. So Chuck Norris has given a lot to the world, but maybe something he didn't give enough to was his dedication to action jeans and now i have to just wonder was he wearing action jeans in this movie was he wearing action jeans when he jumped into bed with the lady i actually should have checked that i like to believe that in every movie chuck norris has made chuck norris is wearing chuck norris branded action jeans with a hidden gusset Oh man, Peter nails it here on all levels. I have to say, I agree with him. Nobody aims during these firefights. Nobody. And truthfully, this is like combat shooting out in the open. This isn't some sort of close quarters tactical spray fire as one enters a room. Nope. 
These are people who are supposed to be engaging the enemy at a very long distance. Ones who are positioned behind cover, who are firing back at you, and it's done in such a ridiculous fashion. Don't get me wrong, I like it, it looks good, but it's goofy. And this is not a great example of, you know, understanding of how actual combat works. It's just instead something that they threw up on the screen because it looks good on camera. I'll say this again, Peter goes into greater detail, but he's right. The use of the covert fake relations with a woman. To me, this entire scene stems from Norris and his general uncomfortable relationship of having on-screen sex scenes with a co-star, which, again, not to shamelessly plug, we covered when we did Silent Rage. So to me, this overly elaborate way that he's using to subvert the need to have a real scene that would involve him having relations with the woman, it's a zig into action when the audience actually expects our hero to zag by showing him having relations with a paramour. I agree, the scene itself, it's overly complex, and it makes it all the stranger to watch. Also, I have to say, Anne's reaction in the morning to his leaving is a little bit bizarre, because it seems that she is so cinematically upset that she's being treated as an object with their fake night together, and then suddenly in the morning it's as if she spent a real one with the hero, because now, of course, she's helped him with his skullduggery, she has to have fallen for him, because, of course, Chuck Norris is the hero. So she tells the departing Braddock that he's got to be careful out there, and she gives him a loving kiss before sending him off to Thailand. How strange things are in the Norris cinematic universe. Peter has also touched on something that has often made me pause whenever I'm watching this or something from this period in general. In a modern A-list film, they don't do this now, but let's say you're making a period piece. Here, take for example, the 2019 Sam Mendes film, 1917, takes place during World War I. The actors in the film are sporting period-appropriate haircuts. Hair, normally short because they're in the military, and if a character you see on screen is unkempt, it's kept logically so. It's unkempt in a way that a guy with a short haircut has grown out would be shaggy, so it still looks like it makes sense. It's the kind of haircut a guy would have if he was stuck fighting for weeks at a time and was unable to be groomed, and now it's grown out. But it looks appropriate. If you go back and watch movies from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even TV, you're going to see a lot of A-list films at this time where they didn't take hairstyle into account early and often. So you get episodes of things like M.A.S.H., where Alan Alda is going to come out rocking a very 70s hairstyle in what is supposed to be a 50s army melodrama. Here, we have something that is sort of the same. You have Chuck Norris sporting this iconic mulleted mane that just flows, but he's supposed to be a military guy. It doesn't quite make sense. Even as a prisoner letting his hair grow out, coming back, you would think a man who has this dedication to the military would have gotten a haircut. But no, instead, he's sporting the, you know, business in the front, party in the back. Also, 
the concept of action genes really makes me ponder how that sort of thing would look upon my fine form. You know, doing the kind of rough and rowdy behavior that I engage with daily. Trips around town. My time spent working it up at the buffet. And of course, making this show the font of information that it needs to be. Me sitting quietly in an office chair or on a couch reading and or viewing films in the dedicated LSCE confines. I mean, truthfully, that hidden gusset, it's doing its thing. Peter, thank you. That was marvelous as always. So I can hear you out there now. Chris, how was this film received? Well, critically, this may not come as much of a surprise. When Missing in Action was released on November 16, 1984, it was not met with an avalanche of praise. Paul Adanasio of the Washington Post commented that while the action here was indeed gripping and the baddies offered up were easy targets, both figuratively and literally, he commented that director Joseph Zito failed really hard at building any sort of surprise, suspense, or tension. And he instead likened the interior shots to having been filmed and processed in algae. He did at least heap some praise on Walsh for his hammy performance as Braddock's sidekick. Variety's reviewer, Loyne, figured that the film was going to do very well based on its, quote, redneck nature and its formulaic and jingoistic slant. Next to the theme and the content of this pick, John Wayne's film The Green Berets is considered to be mellow stuff. Yikes, that's rather rough. Janet Maslin of the New York Times commented that this is indeed a B-movie with Norris being an action hero that doesn't say much, nor does it really employ his martial arts skills, but it does spend a lot of time shooting people. Maslin was seemingly more interested in the way the audience reacted to the treatment and depiction of the Vietnamese soldiers and the officials in the film, noting that there was an unequivocally shifty, villainous, and deceitful rendering of Vietnamese folks, hearkening back to how the Japanese had been depicted in B-level action movies during World War II. In the end, though, what the critics had to say wouldn't matter because 1984 moviegoers voted with their wallets and Missing in Action would go on to make $22 million at the box office, scoring a certified hit for canon. The Go-Go Boys were ecstatic because they had scooped a Rambo film and they were making bank on their investment. Plus, they had this new big-name actor who is now under contract in their stable of artists, one who they can call upon to crank out action films. They would go on to release the prequel sequel, Missing in Action 2, The Beginning, only a scant three months later on March 1st, 1985, which again still beat Rambo First Blood Part 2 to the box office by a full two months. But in honest truth, they didn't really capitalize off of the same cinematic energy. I mean, seriously, case in point, here you have the law of diminishing returns so roundly pointed out. 
because Missing in Action 2 was made for $2.4 million, and at the end of the day, it only made $10.7 million, which I know, nothing to sneeze at, of course, especially when you're dealing with the Go-Go Boys, but let's put this in perspective. You can't really act like you had a hit first, because the numbers do not bear out. They are not comparable. I mean, when the Cameron script for the Rambo sequel was finally shot, and they had director George P. Cosmatos, on behalf of Carolco Pictures, putting a movie forward with Sylvester Stallone starring, and it was made for $25 million, and it wound up grossing $300.4 million at the box office? In spite of what our Israeli entrepreneurs would like you to believe, they were still not playing in the same league as the other Hollywood studios of the time. Now, Norris, for his part, would start to travel the circuit in 1985, and he would give his own warped version of patriotism and commentary, explaining to the media that, well, unlike Stallone's Rambo, my movie is far more patriotic and it's less anti-government. Which, I have to say, I personally disagree with, and I would consider that to be a rather insipid and uneducated stance to take. But, it was offering something that was considered to be different for the American filmgoers of the time. Especially with the growing VHS home market and rental viewers latching on to, you know, something to see. And clearly... Chuck Norris was managing to move the needle for some very disgruntled, and I will have to say overly white, American men of a certain age in 1985. And he was establishing a powerful presence with Cannon as an actor in the 1980s. I mean, before the company would finally fade away, Norris himself would make 10 movies in total for Canon Film Group, cementing his place with the pantheon of actors who helped build the house that was Canon. Missing in action, along with last week's Breakin' from 1984, would serve to be the tipping point. The bright and shining offerings that were released by Canon purely as artistic, albeit low-budget features, that made very real money for the studio, and allowed them to have some bragging rights. As we will see in the coming weeks as we move forward through the catalog and through the timeline, Golan and Globus, with an emphasis on Golan especially, began to forget exactly what made canon money. When hype and believe the mystique they had built, they began investing more and more money into pictures that would come with prestige directors or singular actors. Ones that did not deliver for them, because all of the money instead went to having a name attached, not to actually delivering a quality product. And the shell game would start to consistently put the company ledgers in the red, during a time that they were trying to exponentially expand to their own detriment. It was during this time that Canon would go on to release another ill-conceived sequel to a property that didn't exactly break the bank in the first place. That would be 1985's Adventures of Hercules, aka Hercules II, which starred the great Lou Ferrigno. But that is going to have to be a story that we will pick up next week. So please, join us then, won't you?
The version of Missing in Action that we screened here at the LSCE was the 2017 Chuck Norris triple feature threat put out by Shout Factory on DVD. It can be yours on Amazon for $9.99, and while you get just a bare-bones delivery, you do get all three Missing in Action films, which delivers on its promise to give you action starring Chuck Norris, but not much else by way of special features. For those of you who are looking for indeed something a little bit extra, the 2017 Shout Factory Missing in Action Blu-ray does come with some upgraded features, which includes the film as well as audio commentary by Joseph Zito and an interview featurette by writer James Bruner, as well as the original theatrical trailer. Nothing to sneeze at here, particularly when you take into account the effect that it is $9.97, but I have to say, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where you should get your media from. We just feel in this day and age it's ever so important to still support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to these films will continue to release the content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that really what we're all after? You just want more of what you know and love? Besides, Missing in Action is such a strange offering, and it's such a weird Rambo ripoff. It manages to scoop both the franchise and at the same time offer up something that is both different and strange. Plus, you get to see some rather interesting insights into the psychology of what 1980s America was actually sitting down to view. So with all that I say, what are you waiting for? Get out there and get yourself a copy of Missing in Action today. So that's going to wrap things up for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to give a special thank you to our sidecar contributor, Mr. Peter Martin, for taking the time and offering his own humorous take on Missing in Action. Please support our friends. Check out his current podcast, Chuck McBeef Chest and Ninja News Japan, respectively, and please give him a spin and a review while you're at it. I do hope you will be back next week, and indeed all summer long, as we continue to run through some of our favorite titles that Canon has put out over the years. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please Give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe. Or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please swing by and check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've also been recently added to Stitcher, so you can find us there. Please give us a spin if you like. And I'm also proud to say we're on Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey, Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street. Today. We're also featured on both Podchaser and Good Pods. Those are podcast databases for listeners and creators alike. Find us there, give us a follow and a review if you please, and hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we're a part of to help give us an old boost in the rankings. 
The more reviews and the increased likes, that increases the marvelous algorithms and makes us more searchable. And then we can share these fine films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? <laughs> of course you do. Do you have any questions for us, any comments, any movies you want us to cover, anything that you thought I got wrong here? Well, we would love to hear from you. Please send an email or an audio clip by way of lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. Do you love social media? Well, we use it here. You can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP, or you can find us on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. If you'd like to be even more personable or you wish to contribute a segment in the sidecar, please, by all means, send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, I'll say it again. Until next time, please, folks, stay healthy out there. Take care. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Be well. And most importantly, remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night.